0: You're listening to Irish Radio candidates Home and Abroad and in the diplomatic service the diplomats have the joy and pain of being transient and getting to travel around the world but also uh, when they establish themselves somewhere it's time often to move on and while our former ambassador Jim Kelly has moved from Ottawa to New York, uh, our new ambassador Eamon McKee, has arrived in Ottawa, and uh, I'm delighted that Eamon has taken the time and is going to have a chat and give us a little bit of his background. Uh, He's previously been the ambassador in Israel and South Korea, and uh, was also involved in some of the Good Friday Agreement work that was happened. Eamon and Ambassador, thanks a million for agreeing to come along and get an opportunity to get to
1: know you. Yeah, my pleasure, Austin. Yeah.
0: Going way back, you're a Dubliner. You're a dub. Uh,
1: yes, I am indeed. Uh, although my 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 grandfather, my father's side, came down from Newton Hamilton, South Armagh, after Partition, they were they're were in they're fighting the War of Independence. So uh, we we still there's still family up there with the McKean name in, in Newton Hamilton. So maybe maybe that partly explains my affinity with Northern Ireland. I've always always felt that attachment, you know. But yeah, born in born in Clontarf uh, on 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 the north side of the city, a wonderful little place. And uh, but went off to Washington. and By the time I came back, the Celtic Tiger had hit. I couldn't afford a house in Clontarf, and we moved to Rath Farm, which was great because it's right beside the Wicklow Mountains, and I really enjoyed getting out about and doing a bit of hiking. So yeah, yeah. So that that's home. And you know, wherever you move in the world, Ireland's always home. True. So, I Eamon, are, are you from a small or a big family? I have two brothers and a sister, which is is not too bad from from an Irish point of view. Although I have to say, uh, in our in when I was growing up, uh, it was a very different Ireland, and families could be could be an awful lot bigger as well. So, about about the right size, I'd say. You know,
0: <laughs> I, that's what I would call a diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we have our uh, three kids myself, and we had we had two, a boy and a girl, a nice a nice a nice Protestant family, as someone would say, and then we had a third. Um, and I said, well, we're gonna stop, we're gonna stop at three, I said because I can't fit any more in the back seats of the car, so that three is enough. <laughs> so, yeah, we have three wonderful kids.
0: And then, so you would have gone to school in uh, North Dublin, did you as well, somewhere out there?
1: Yeah, I went to uh, St. Paul's, Rohini, and a fantastic school run by the Pinsentians, and uh, got a a great education there. And and in fact, earlier this year, I went back to St. Paul's because we have a program called Diplomats in the Classroom. And uh, so I went back and talked to the students there about life as a diplomat and so on. And uh, and yes, it's true, when you go back, it looks a lot smaller, um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it was a great school and a great education, you know.
0: So when you got back and and do that program, Diplomats in the, the Classroom, because I know former Ambassador Kelly did the same thing in Drimna, um, if you think back to your own schooling, was there any such type of program in place that... Um, exposed you to some of the possibilities?
1: No, not at all. I mean, that's uh, you know, back in back in the back in the day, there there wasn't really that. You know, I think most of us in in St. Paul, you know, had had our eye on going to college, or we joined the bank, or the civil service, and uh, I think you know, horizons were were limited, or limited to what your your immediate family did. You know, so no, they were they were they were more. Um, the horizons were were pretty restricted, I, I, I'd say overall, you know. So yeah, the next stage after 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 school was was going to college, basically.
0: And there, when you came along, you did a PhD, uh, and your thesis was Irish economic policy, 1939 to 52. So obviously a deep interest in politics from an early stage.
1: Yeah, I was I, yes, I was interested. I took that subject because I really knew nothing about it, and I I, I really had not figured out how modern Ireland worked. I mean, you can, you know, we, in my undergraduate studies, we did a lot on, you know, 1916 and the War of Independence, you know, and going back to Gladstone, Parliament, and all of that. But there was nothing really published and, and, and very little spoken about more more contemporary history. And it was a very unpromising area when you think about it, you know, the 19, late 1930s, 40s, and up to 52. But I was really interested in discovering... What was going on, and how did Ireland take shape in this in this period? So it was kind of unpromising originally, but it became a fascinating subject, and I kind of discovered that 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 was the, the platform for global Ireland at that stage. You know, so it really did uh, it really did kind of illuminate for me how how Ireland worked and and, and how modern Ireland was was kind of born in that post independence uh, period.
0: Now, I can understand 1939, because that is a critical date in Irish history, Irish political history, but why 1952?
1: Well, 1952 was was a a budget and a crash, and they they kind of crashed the economy, and it started, really, the kind of the very bleak 1950s. But when I did the research, it broke into two parts, really, because in 1939, um, De Valera got what he wanted, in a way. He wanted Ireland to be self-sufficient. Um, this was the dream of, of Irish nationalists. This was the economic plan. It was the economic version of romantic nationalism, that Ireland could be self-sufficient, independent of the world, we could provide what we needed for ourselves. And so the conditions of 1939 meant that, in a sense, de Valera had the opportunity to fulfill this. Um, and, of course, we discovered the exact opposite, that we we couldn't be self-sufficient, uh, and the British government made this very plain to us by restricting our supplies of oil uh, and tea and, and essential goods and so on. And I think that in the in that period from uh, from 1939 through to the end of the war and, the, and, the, and 19, 1948 when Filippo lost power, in a way that's the death of de Valera's dream and the death of that kind of vision of Ireland and you know, the very famous speech that the, the, the broadcast rather that Devil Era gave about you know at the crossroads, I think was actually a desperate kind of lament to remind people this is what this is the Ireland we were supposed to have. You know, rurally based, uh, dispersed industries where we needed them, you know, happy children and, 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 and people who devoted themselves to more spiritual rather than material matters. I think Devil Era realised that, that was over, that it wasn't going to happen. Um, you know, and so that's the first period. And then the second period is when the the inter-party government come in and they get martial aid and they basically try to use the martial aid money to, to, to boost the Irish economy. And in a way that kind of all ends in tears when Pinapol come back in in 52 and crash the economy. Um, and it's in that post after the crash of 52 that there's a real sense that was the whole independence project mistaken. It's a very famous and funny quote from Brendan Behan in the 50s when the population dropped below 3 million. And he said, you know, we should hand Ireland back to the British and apologize for the state we've left it in. And so there was a real sense, of, well, you know, what are we going to do? And it's in this period, 1950s, 1956, that we decide we need to open up to the world. We need to bring in foreign direct investment. Um, that's the only way that we're going to develop because you know, partition essentially separated our economy from our industrial base in Belfast. And you know, when we inherited an independent country, uh, to the 26 counties, it was a purely, largely agricultural economy. And so, foreign direct investment was seen as a way of, of boosting uh, Irish economic development. And that's where globalization begins. But it begins with the death of that romantic vision of Ireland. Uh, Terrell Eyre's vision of Ireland, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the, the foundations of Global Ireland are really in this, in this period, you know. So I, I think it's, a, it's an enormously important period, not for the obvious reasons of, you know, World War Emergency, but because we set a completely different course in terms of how our society has come to develop. And it takes about 40 years for this to work out. It's only really in the 1990s that we end in voluntary immigration, you know. So it was a long, long process.
0: So then, uh, Ambassador, when you talk about that terminology and foreign direct investment, was Ireland to the forefront in that type of thinking at that time?
1: Well, I think it was. They, 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 they began to look at tax incentives and what, what encouraged American businessmen to come but in a way, um, we are also part of a broader global movement of uh, capital. Um, the, um, in the in the post-war period, we have the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade set up. We have the International uh, uh, Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and international free trade is seen as a way of avoiding global conflict again. Um, the Americans are you know, running a huge deficit uh, boosted by the Vietnam War, so the dollar becomes the medium of international exchange. Uh, And American companies are establishing uh, platforms abroad. And so, you know, but I think one of the really key decisions we made was on uh, free education that we put an emphasis on training our population and educating our population. And I think that was really key to the future development, that we have this English-speaking creative, energetic, uh, well-educated workforce, um, plus, of course, the tax incentives. Then after that, you have the development of the single market within, within the European Union. We're part of that. And because we're part of that, you have American companies who want to set up their operations inside the European market. we become a platform for that. And, of course, the IDA did a wonderful job outreaching uh, to find uh, industrialists from around the world who want to set up in Ireland. And, of course, they knocked on doors of Irish-Americans, you know. And it doesn't mean that Irish-Americans would make a sentimental decision about Ireland, but it did mean that they'd give you listen, you know. So um, in a way, uh, there was a kind of convergence uh, around where we were heading, uh, and, of course, by the 1990s, you're into globalization, the digital revolution, you know, and and the creation of the euro. And so the whole thing goes on steroids and you've got the Celtic tiger, you know.
0: Taking a step back then, because I was born in 1953. So I remember in the 60s, wasn't it, Sean Lamass came out with the policy document that, in a way, was a vision. And that was considered very... Um, I won't well radical to some degree at the time, but it was something that was put out in the public domain. Um, that would be kind of I, the period that you did your your thesis on is something that, as such, it was before my time, and I it was never discussed or was never taught.
1: I think that's right. I think de Valera, at some point didn't really trust Lamass to. Uh, to, to lead Ireland into the kind of country that ever wanted. Because Lamas made no bones about it. His objective was, as he said himself, the economic aggrandizement of Ireland. Lamas was determined to end immigration, to bring employment, bring manufacturing, bring investment to Ireland. And from that point of view, he was uh, a visionary. He saw a modern Ireland that was progressive um, and, and economically proud of itself and able to look after its own. Um, and so, but Devalera, of course, stays in power so long. Lamass is an older man when he becomes Taoiseach. But it's, but, De- but Lamas is absolutely determined to to develop the economy. Um, and we owe him a great debt from that point of view because he was visionary. He did see that Ireland needed to engage in the world and bring in uh, investors and bring in and, and encourage the manufacturing, um, which, of course, he had done when when Fianna Folli got into power in the 1930s by through protectionism and so on. So really, Lammas is, is is a key figure in seeing you know where 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 modern Ireland needed to go you know, um, um, but but again it was it was it was uh, it was the death of this romantic nationalism this romantic view of Ireland and and this is where modern Ireland is born so Lammas is a hugely important figure you know and of course McIntyre would. McEntee would often jive about Lamass, you know, oh, well, his Huguenot background, you know, that means he's just into commerce and doesn't really understand the finer points of politics and identity and so on. So it was kind of funny because they didn't have a great relationship, you know. But yes, Lamass was one of his, the founding father of global Ireland in many ways.
0: So then, what I'm getting from this, first of all, is a tremendous love of a certain aspect of history, and yeah. uh, being the economic history mm-hmm. and that, um, Did that expand, or, or does that then, your interest in history, did it hook you in to the bigger history picture?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the interest in history, in a, you know, it kind of, it sparked in me a kind of an interest in how government works, how power works. And, you know, I, 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 um, I was tempted about, uh, you know, to do an academic to look at look at an academic career, um, but the but the reality, the, sorry, the reality of power and, and of politics and of government was what really attracted me. You know.
0: So then, so did you go straight from um, university after you'd done your uh, thesis and, and your PhD straight into uh, government at that stage into the civil service?
1: Yeah, I had done uh, i had done my BA and I was doing it with the wonderful um, uh, Romer Fanning. And it it it, uh, it started as an MA and then he he got it converted into a PhD which kind of shortened it a little bit but I hadn't finished the PhD by the time I left because I got uh, uh, I got offers uh, for employment in the civil service in finance and foreign affairs and I chose foreign affairs again kind of curiosity about the world and and Ireland's place in it so I joined foreign affairs then in 1986 and I then finished my thesis a year later. Uh, finished PhD a year later, so I joined joined the department in, in 1986. Probably because of the of the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 85, you know, uh, the department was was increasing its deployment of officers to to give effect to the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 85. So I came in then the following year. And that was a very exciting uh, period, obviously, because, you know, you, you remember this well. You know, when you get the letter offering you a job in the civil service, you're going, oh, my God, this is like winning the lottery, you know, <laughs> pensionable job and all of that, you know. And believe me, they were rare enough in, in the 1980s, you know. A lot of my classmates in college had, had emigrated. I'd say the majority of them had emigrated to that stage. Um, so, yeah, into the department then in in 1986.
0: And straight into the Anglo-Irish Division.
1: Yeah, and um straight into Anglo Irish division and, and that was amazing because you could see, you know, we had uh, uh officials were being sent up uh to the Secretariat, which was established, and the Secretariat in Belfast, which was implementing the the Anglo Irish Agreement, you know, was besieged by unionists and it was a lot of security and you know, the convoy would come in on a Friday with the with the with the team from the week. Coming back home and a weekend team going up because we manned the secretary 24 hours a day. Uh, We were uh, the traveller system was being was being augmented. These are you know officers in the department who would get in a car and drive north and meet contacts and report back to government. So you're seeing all of this, you know, as a as a new officer, and it's it's tremendous. It was tremendously exciting to see it see it all all working out on a day to day basis. And I I have to commend you know my colleagues in foreign affairs. You know the the staff who who were up in the secretariat as well. We had Irish Army personnel like the cooks and the drivers and so on. You know they they took real risks uh, going up at that time. You know and um, there were death threats and and like I say there was a unionist protest outside of, of the secretariat and and uh, you know Paisley was leading marches saying Holster says no in protest at the Anglo Irish Agreement. You know it took real it took real guts and you know you take the travellers. They were heading off in, in cars into into the into the wilds of Northern Ireland to meet all kinds of contacts to find out what was going on and, and, and putting putting taking taking risks, you know. Um but this is this was this was tremendously important work as well because I don't think you can understand peace in Northern Ireland. Uh, or the success of the Good Friday Agreement in in 1998 without considering the foundation laid by the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985.
0: Given that you had family roots in the North, um, I won't quite say that you had a vested interest but you you certainly had a connectivity to the North and to the South that would have had you keenly uh, aware and keenly anxious that everything would work were you in communication or connecting with your northern family at that stage?
1: No, we had we had, that was that 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 had had gone um, that, had, that 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 connection had faded, you know. Right. Um, but we we had uh, you know there were there were uh, and this is going back years now, there were, was back when back in the day in like the uh, area nineteen seventy one or seventy two, there were two of my grand uncles who ran a chicken hatchery in Newton Hamilton and they they had lo- they lost their land to the the, military, the British Army because they took took over their chicken hatchery in, uh, in 1971 or 72 and there was a super on one of these kind of uh, observation towers, secure observation towers, you know, but it was quite funny because after the Good Friday Agreement, I was head of the Justice and Security side and we were trying to advance security normalization and um, I was providing some points for, for Bertie Hearns to talk to Tony Blair and to illustrate the slow pace of 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 normalization of security, I put it in the speaking notes that there was a super-sanger in Newton-Hamilton and there hadn't been a bomb there in 20 years as a good example. And I'm sure Tony Blair was wondering what on earth the Taoiseach was talking about and why had Bertie Hearn got an interest in a super-sanger (laughs) in (laughs) Newton-Hamilton? Two weeks later, Tony Blair grabbed Bertie and told him they had demolished the super-sanger. So I was very shocked with that with that outcome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then your first okay. diplomat, after that, how many years were you involved in, in the North-South before you had your first posting?
1: Oh, well, listen, I mean, altogether 20 years, but that that included then a stint in 19, I, 1989. Then I left, I went to Boston, which only lasted a month because I was sent down to the to, to the U.N., and then I got switched in January to Washington because there was a change in personnel and, and Charlie Hodge was coming on a state visit or a semi, uh, more or less an official visit. And so I ended up going to Washington in January of 1990 and had uh, six great years there, you know, where I met my wife. Two of my three kids were born there. We were involved in... in Things like the Northern Ireland peace process, the Clinton campaign and presidency, um, and uh, the peace process, and how we worked through that in Washington. So they were they were fantastic years. And then I went back to Anglo Irish Division and spent some more years there on the justice and security side. And then after that, I went to you know was involved in the team. And then I went to New York in 1999 and then came back again to 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 Anglo-Irish Division to head up the security side, um, and then eventually went into, then back and forth anyway, and eventually went then as head of mission to Korea in 2009, as ambassador to Korea in 2009.
0: The I thing I, I'm, con- I'm very conscious of, because uh, when you mentioned there, when you mm. get the letter to say you're into the civil service, I got the letter that told me I was into the bank, which lasted a number of years but my father had been in the bank so we moved around and the impact on family uh, has its challenges yeah so you know given that it's one thing i suppose being in english-speaking world but when you get position posted to South Korea, everything is different. And your whole family, it's a different world. How did that go?
1: Yeah, it is a challenge. I mean, my, you know, for example, my wife worked for Bruce Morrison. And then she worked there the the U.S. Uh, immigration and Nationalization Service. After birth of her first kid, you know, you know she, she gives up her career and moves with me and, and, and our two kids at the time back to Ireland. And you know, her career is, is 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 over with. Uh as the kids grow, we are taking them out of school. Um and so we bring our three kids to Korea and they're young at the time and I, put, I take out the map and show them where we're moving to, you know, and they just kept saying to themselves, Oh, we're moving to Korea, we're moving to Korea. Uh, and, but it was great. It does change your kids, um and I think they get more out of it than 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 they lose. Um but yeah, you know, our son went back to, to, to boarding school and our two daughters stayed with us in Korea. Um, and, you know, because my wife is American and I'm Irish, we already had a kind of, you know, transatlantic uh, family set up. But, yeah, part of affairs in the career asks an awful lot of, of your partner and your children, you know. Um, but it but it does give them great experiences, too, you know. So there's a there's a balance to be struck, you know. But yeah, moving around, you know yourself from moving around. Um, right. it, it it's not easy, you know. It's it, it's it's difficult, and and you have to you have to adjust to new environments. And you know, Korea was for me a really interesting um, experience because it is a totally different society. You know, they think differently, they they are socially differently uh, different, and uh, they're an amazing society too. I mean, Korea is one of the great modern miracles of, of a society that develops not just an amazing economy um, uh, but, a, but a great democracy too you know uh, and so a huge admiration for the Great but, but it is a very different experience you know um, and, it, and, and, and then you reflect on Ireland too because you see Ireland the kind of things that we have in Ireland the social ease the social capital the way we talk to each other the way we interact is, is hugely valuable it doesn't naturally happen you know um, and you learn that when you when you move around the world that, that that Ireland is a very special place to be a very special place to live for for all of the difficulties and, and, and challenges that we face um, it 's it's a, it's a fantastic country with a fantastic people you know uh,
0: ambassador from a, a diplomatic location perspective, and I know um, the Irish government made a policy decision in the last few years to try and expand their global footprint one of the the yeah, questions I suppose and that is what would Ireland's interest be in having a diplomatic footprint in the, South Korea and other countries like that because we can very easily see that there is very much a transatlantic relationship and it's historical and there's an Australian relationship a British relationship and there's relationships within the, the European community um, but for some other and I'd say outlying or far distant countries why would we want, why would Ireland want a footprint in South Korea?
1: Well, we have 15 embassies around Asia, and they're really, really important to Ireland's interests for, for, a, for a whole range of reasons. One, Asia is uh, the dominant economic region when it comes to economic growth. Um, Ireland, to be economically secure and resilient, needs to diversify its markets, and these are growing markets, and they take investment, but they're, 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 they're a great investment in our future, I think we've seen from Brexit that you can't rely on, on things and, therefore, to mitigate risk, you have to be in these markets. Um, we get investment from Korea, and, and uh, again, that's a slow build, but we have had significant investment coming from Korea uh, into Ireland. You know, Korea is, for example, I think it's the 14th largest economy in the world. It's the source of huge innovation, uh, and we can make links with them. We also have an Irish population in Korea, uh, a lot of uh, Irish, young Irish people go there to teach English, and we have that connection too. Uh, when COVID hit, for example, and we needed to repatriate thousands of Irish people from, from Asia, we had our embassy network uh, on it, and they did tremendous work getting, getting Irish people home. Um, and there's a broader point as well that Ireland is, is a small, open economy uh, devoted to you know, globalization and free trade, and, and the principle of, of international law, and it's really important for us to be to, to be immersed in the world, to you know defend our interests, um, to build our economic resilience, uh, to represent our values around the world. Um, and so, you know, we have a very lean uh, foreign service by by comparison with anybody. Most of our embassies are two diplomats. That's it. Um, there are obviously some bigger ones, but but most of them, on average, it's two diplomats. Um, and you know, there's no comparison to to living in a country if you want to know it and represent it at the highest political level. Um, and look at look at Ireland now, where we're about to take our place for there for two years as of January on the Security Council. You know, which is the top you know global council on peace and security in this world, and, and we'll be there representing our values and interests and and, and supporting the European Union's interests there too. So. You know, I think it's really important for, for Ireland to be globally active and present in knowing what's going on in the world. And, and you know, if you were just to go down to the hard dollars and cents of it and just talk about economics, economics doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, economic investment and trade and relationships happens because, you know, we're connected to people at political level. Um, we raise our profile. Um, you know, people appreciate and know where Ireland is. I mean, there's another point that in Asia, and because Asia is so economically important, most Asians, you know, would not have any real clear idea about Ireland, you know, that we often flatter ourselves that we're known around the world because of St. Patrick's Day that we're not. We, it's, a, it's a busy, noisy world out there. Ireland has to fight for profile and, and, and for its own interests. So I think the Global Ireland strategy is, is absolutely right and, and is a great investment in, in Ireland's future.
0: So there would be a direct relationship in effect then between the global Irish footprint and being able to be elected onto the Security Council because the relationships needed in order for that to happen are being sown as a result of that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we, we got elected on the first count by getting just exactly the right number of votes to meet the quota, no more and no less. So literally every single phone call, every single meeting, every single representation by an embassy abroad mattered in getting those votes, you know, um, and, and that's uh, that's across the board. I mean, uh, look, look look in Washington, for example, when I was there, you know, we had, you know, the numbers vary, possibly certainly around 60,000, maybe much higher of undocumented Irish who were in the United States having overstayed their B-1 visas and so on. Um, they weren't documented. And we had to get, we had to solve that problem. And we solved that problem by utilizing our contacts uh, on Capitol Hill um, to get uh, the Morrison bill through. And that meant mobilizing people like Ted Kennedy and Al Simpson in the Senate, Jack Brooks in, in the House, Bruce Morrison himself, the Irish Immigration Reform Movement, Chuck Feeney lended his support as well, you know. But, you know, we couldn't have, when we solved it, we solved that problem through the Morrison visas. But that couldn't have happened without us having, you know, all of these friends and contacts in in Washington and across the United States, you know. So those contacts are are built by our diplomats on a day-to-day basis, and when something happens and we need to mobilize them, that's what we do, you know.
0: After Korea and the stint back in Dublin, you went to Israel. um, A very, very different experience, I would think, in every way, um, from be it North America or Asia.
1: Yeah, it's quite funny. I, by, by accident, I've happened to have experience of, the, of three of the great conflicts in the world. You know, um, Ireland partitioned on the peace process, Korea uh, partitioned and, 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 and kind of tension there too, and then, of course, Israel. So, yeah, a, a very different experience, but an enormous privilege as well to to go to, you know, a country where, you know, the the, the origins of, of so much of Western civilization um, uh, lie. And I remember the first time um, my uh, my wife and, and uh, two of our daughters were in the back of the car and I was driving up the hill from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I remember saying to my wife, well, we're driving to Jerusalem. We're going to see Jerusalem, you know? And it, it was an enormous privilege to go and park the car and walk around the old city of Jerusalem and see the Wailing Wall and and go into the Holy Sepulchre and so on, you know? So, yeah i it was it was a great it was a great two years fascinating place um you could you could drive up to galilee and in in, in 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 one day and spend the afternoon up there you could drive down to the negev you know we took a trip into to to jordan to see petra um and of course we we were we were involved in 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 in, in the day to day work as well but you know yeah israel israel is 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 a is a very obsession place from from that point of view you know
0: and diplomatic relations with the Middle east, um, I guess are it's crucial, uh, given the tensions that are there, that there's always a good working relationship between Ireland and israel
1: well' it, it, it's, it's a good relationship with israel it's a good relationship with, with all of uh, all of the governments and the people in, in the region, and as you know, Ireland is a very um, passionate and strong supporter of the two state solution and of of of, uh, of the Palestinian people. Um, in fact, we, we Department of Foreign Affairs, would get and our minister would get more parliamentary questions on on the, on the Middle East peace process than on virtually any other area. Irish people are very interested in in a resolution um, of, of, of the conflict there and and, and and a path towards peace. So, yeah, an, an enormously important uh, place for us to have feet on the ground and and and. Um, uh, and, and to be listening to and open to people and views and reporting back on that, you know, and and I have to say, you know, our our some of our, our ministers has a, has a huge interest in in the issue, um, and uh, you know, has devoted a lot of time and energy to it. and I know he would have liked to do more. Uh, I was lucky enough to have him, and indeed. Uh, Jerry Flanagan, who was minister at the time, both of them were in. Were in uh, came to Israel when I was when I was ambassador there, and that was that was great to to, to to have them over there and to meet our contacts and and to talk about the peace process over there, you know. So yeah, uh, fascinating. fascinating insights into in, into the nature of of the conflict there.
0: And now you've arrived back on this side of the Atlantic into I suppose what would be a very quiet political environment, relatively speaking, while it's. A large territory with a huge Irish interest, particularly since CETA is now ratified, etc. So there's uh, uh, tremendous opportunities here. I'm sure you're looking forward to the years ahead.
1: Oh yeah, listen, this is this is a fantastic post, and and myself and my wife sat down and tried to figure out where we we're in Dublin, where did we want to go, and, and it was Canada. And then by um, by a quirk of the system, I actually got what I asked for, uh, which doesn't often happen in various, so we're, we're thrilled to be here. But also, I think there's been a real step change in the relationship between Ireland and Canada, and for for the better, you know. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of new Irish immigration to, uh, to Canada that's boosted the relationship, particularly after the financial crisis. You know, young Irish people decided to go to Canada, and Toronto and Vancouver in particular, um, um, but right across Canada, and I think that's revivified the relationship. Um, you know, and I commend Jim, my predecessor, Jim Kelly, did a fantastic job here as well, along with the team. You know, between 2017 and, and the end of his tenure, we had 23 high-level visits, um, and that, those high-level visits are absolutely critical to to bolstering the bilateral re- re- relationship, you know, to Taoiseach and, and ministers and members of parliament. Um and so there's also CETA, as you say, which has boosted the trade relationship and there's much more potential in that to be to be exploited. Um, there's the Irish heritage here in Canada, which is very, very deep in terms of the of Irish um immigrants who have come here over the years and, and shaped uh Canadian history, like like Darcy Nagy, one of the founding fathers of Canada indeed. Um and so and there's a real appreciation, I think, of the relationship and, and a huge amount of potential to, to deepen it between, you know, Irish appreciation of Canada and Canada, Canada's understanding of Ireland. So there's a really exciting time, COVID restrictions notwithstanding. I think there's, there's huge potential. There's amazing Irish studies programs like St. Michael's in, in Toronto and, and Michael Kennedy's uh, Irish studies program at Concordia. Um, and, 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 you know, we have... Uh, there's a huge resonance as well, I think, between between the Irish story and and the relationship between Canadians and and the First Nations, um, which which is really interesting too. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the it's just it's a fascinating posting, it's a fascinating relationship, and we have you know the what really strikes me is the the energy of of the Irish presence here in Canada. You know, right across the board, you know, with the GAA, ICANN in Toronto, uh, Darren Park Foundation. I mean, just endless. You know, and you look at the span of the Irish footprint from from you know Nova Scotia and Newfoundland Labrador, right across Canada, all the way to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and and of course, you know, we've a new consulate there with Frank and Jennifer, mm-hmm. doing a great job um and uh, John, my deputy and Laura are, are fantastic in their outreach too. So yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it and and um uh, at the moment we're we're all I'm kinda of looking at, you know, getting to know the place obviously and then figuring out what are the kind of things uh we like to do over the next few years to strengthen strengthen the relationship between Ireland and Canada. So um yeah, yeah, an amazing opportunity for, for me and, and indeed my family.
0: Is the historian in you getting um, itchy feet wanting to delve into some of the details of those histories?
1: Of course, yeah, I've begun begun doing some reading, and, uh, you know, I I should say as well, I think one one of the interesting things that strikes me is that back in Ireland, and because of the peace process, we've become much more comfortable with our British heritage, as it were, or British heritage being part of the Irish identity, you know. Um, you know, particularly after uh, Queen Elizabeth II visited Ireland in, in 2011, um, there was a kind of historic reconciliation and reproach mark. Um And I remember back in, in the late 1980s when we began to first commemorate the Irish who had fallen in, in other armies um, around, in different conflicts. That was new territory, this idea that we could embrace uh, Irish people who had joined the British Army, for example. And we're now much more comfortable acknowledging um, that, you know, Irishmen who joined, you know, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers or the College Rangers or the Enniskillen Rifles or whatever, that they were part of the Irish tradition. And and that's a recent development. But I think because of all of that, and I have to say I, I, I was engaged with the, bringing Irish veterans of the Korean War over, it was a highlight of my time there, and they were in the Royal Ulster Rifles. Because we're able to do that and we've taken you know, the relationship with Britain kind of to another level. Uh, I think that's made Canada an easier proposition, you know, because the idea of, of Canada and its relationship to, to, to Britain and the British Crown uh, was probably always a bit of a slight complication. How do we manage this? I think that's not a, a relevant issue anymore. And and, and the development of, of Anglo-Irish relations has has made it much easier then to, to embrace Canada from that point of view, you know. Um, But yeah, there's so many residences there, it's it's fascinating having the privilege of of being Ireland's ambassador here and and seeing that up close. Uh,
0: When you do mention the (laughs) Connacht Rangers and the Dublin Fusiliers, there is a Dublin Fusilier buried in Beechwood Cemetery. and Ah. Yeah, an interesting story down there that you'll get an opportunity to follow up on.
1: Um, This is it, I mean... Coincidences that happen, you know. The, like, for example, my wife's grand, grand on our father's side, her, her, her grandparent, her grandfather was from Hamilton in Canada. They they fought in the American Army and got U.S. citizenship. That's how her father ended up being born in 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 in, in um, Cape Cod. And you know, so we're looking forward to coming down to Hamilton and looking at that. But you know, you know yourself. To just when when you start looking at stories and, and delving into the background, you find all kinds of coincidences. You know. Um, and, and uh, yeah that's why history is fascinating because it reaches into the present and then you discover all of these things you know.
0: So when we're in the present uh, we're at a very historic time on south of you uh, at the moment and then from an Irish perspective given your involvement in the Good Friday Agreement here in Ireland mm-hmm. how are you feeling about how, how are you reading situations at the moment and where's your head?
1: In terms of Brexit, you mean?
0: In terms of Brexit, and then in terms of the Canadian, Irish Canadian, and Irish American relationship.
1: Oh uh, well, listen. I mean, the the foundation for 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 all of these relationships are are people, you know, and the, and the, and the connection that that, that people have, and the, and that remains will all you know, their connection between Ireland and the United States will will always be a very very strong one because of that connection and how formative the Irish were in shaping. America as an economy, as a society, and as a democracy. That's always going to be the case. Um, And uh, similarly in Canada, um, and I think we have some work to do to to build the profile of the Irish story in Canada. And on Brexit, of course, the relationship between the Irish people and the British people remains very, very strong. So yes, we do have issues at the moment. um, But, you know, as, as we used to say in the peace process, we have the duty of hope that, you know, we work towards making things better. Um, and I, I know that, you know, our teacher, miguel you know, Martin, um, our, the, our, our Thomas student worker and, and Simon Coveney, and uh, all of the cabinets are, are, are dedicated to, you know, making things better, uh, including on Brexit. Um, on the Northern Ireland peace process, we've, we've, we've reestablished the institutions, for example, um, and you know, a lot of people said it, you know, it can't be done, and so on. But but the, these things have been done. So I think the one thing that Ireland brings to this, and it will bring it to the Security Council, and it will bring it to the conversation as Europe about Brexit, um, is we bring a very positive approach, you know, um, and and we bring our values, which are, you know, values where we believe talking is better than than not talking, engagement, compromise, um, making the world a better place. Um, and, and I think, you you know, that that is what Ireland has has always brought to situations, you know. And if you look at Irish immigrants and the history of Irish immigration, we've always tried to make things better wherever we've gone. We've always made an impact as a people. And the one thing that you learn from being a diplomat is no matter where you go in the world, you will find some Irish legacy. And it's always a positive legacy, you know. We were not colonial masters. We were not exploitative. Um uh, you find great Irish missionaries, great Irish leaders, uh, civil rights activists. I mean, take Mother Jones in America, for example, you know, mm-hmm. Irish born, educated in Toronto, absolutely amazing woman. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, Ireland does bring that positivity to things. So whatever the, the difficulties are, and this is we are facing a very tough few months on Brexit, ultimately we will bring a very positive attitude to that, to, to, to get it solved and, 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 and put things back on track.
0: So you mentioned you've arrived into Ottawa. You're, it's during COVID. You've had to quarantine, so you're not getting the ability to get out and get around and actually meet people. But you're there at a beautiful time of the year. And despite, um, I guess, some of the restrictions on movement, um, you would be getting to see the fall colours. You're settling in and the family are liking what they're finding.
1: Ah, yeah. Listen, it's it's fantastic. I mean, the the colours are amazing. I mean, they really are. I don't know. It's like the trees get plugged into some kind of energy. They're just blazing. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, the city is lovely, and um, yeah, it's it's frustrating, obviously, because it's a very very strange way to start posting. You know, um, usually you start posting meeting a lot of people and and that, but we have to meet people. You know, like you and I are talking, you meet them sitting at your at your desk and and, and a screen. So I've done, I've been outreaching from that point of view, uh, uh, but it is a strange way to start a posting. I, but to be absolutely honest, I mean, uh, and, and some, some of my colleagues in front of affairs would say the same thing, in some ways it gives you a bit of breathing space as well. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of get a handle on things, you know, to be absolutely honest as well. So uh, it's that funny mix of it's a little bit frustrating, but it gives you a bit of time. Uh, to really absorb where you are and, and 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 plan for the future, as it were. Because yeah, listen, this this too will pass, you know. So, but you know, if you have to if you have to be in in lockdown or you have to be in a place where there are restrictions, you know, this is this is this is this is pretty good. It's it's such a beautiful location, um, and uh, the people are 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 very friendly, and and we have a great team here as well at the embassy, just just fantastic and very positive. So uh, yeah, yeah. From that point of view, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very positive experience, you know.
0: So I know your predecessor Jim was a, a jogger, and uh, are you into? I, I know you enjoy the outdoors, uh-huh. exploring. So there's lots of areas in Canada. are you any. Sporting interests?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I do. Love, I love hiking and that, and I do. I, I wouldn't be a natural runner now, but I do get up on the treadmill and and, and, and try to try to stay fit. I I I follow I follow uh, uh, rugby. I like rugby a lot, and um, so we we would always. Uh, I even got my American wife to to become a passionate supporter of the the rugby team. Right. We always watch the nations and that. I uh, follow, obviously, uh, the Dublin team and, and their inexorable march forward every year um, uh, and, and enjoy watching that. I've actually recently begun to watch the Tour de France, which is weirdly hypnotic and, and absorbing. And it was great to see uh, uh, Sam do so well and, and, and win the green jersey, which was a real surprise for the Tour de France, you know. So, yeah, um, and because we were so long in the United States, I've begun to watch uh, Monday Night Football as well. As well, so I've kind of uh, kind of rediscovered the joys of that. But there's a lot of other sports here, which uh, apparently is almost mandatory to, to to get into, namely ice hockey. So that, that that's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting new experience, you know.
0: And of course, you have the opportunity to take up downhill or cross-country skiing, which if you are, <laughs> and ska- and skating. So if you want to, yeah, to, I, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I tell you it everybody tells me, you know, uh, be you know, be, 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 very afraid of the winter, and they put their brighteners on me. Um, so I'm almost curious as to what this is all about. But um, I've also been widely told to embrace the winter. So, um, yes, if you see me sporting a, a plaster on an arm or a leg, you know I've embraced it <laughs> too enthusiastically. But, yeah, I do intend to... Uh, to, to put on some ice skates and do the Rideau Canal and, and maybe do the, the Nordic skiing but yeah I think it's important it's get out and about you know and I usually find that it, it's that we were warned about the Korean winters and yeah, listen you you adapt to anything you know I, I I I tell you a funny story about about my my kids we were we were on holiday when we were in Israel and we we brought the kids back to Connecticut for holiday. And uh, I think it was cat-led, the war started again, or the flare-up between Israel and, and Gaza started up again. So CNN was full of news coverage of missiles flying about. So my kids are in Connecticut saying, I don't think we should go back to Israel. And um, I said, I listen, it'll be fine, it'll be grand. So we went back to Israel, and we were in the residence, and the, uh, the alarms went off to indicate a missile attack was imminent. And to get into the bomb shelter, we had a bomb shelter in the basement, and uh, so I went in to wake them up, it was a Saturday morning, to get them out of bed, and I said, "Come on, we've got to get go into the bomb shelter." And they wouldn't get out of bed. They said, "Ah, oh, it could be fine, it would be fine." And I'm thinking, how are you more scared in Connecticut than you were like under the shadow of the missiles, you know? And of course, what it is is that people get used to people get used to anything. So I think if we can if we can get used to missiles falling on us in, in in Tel Aviv, I think we can get used to the Canadian winter.
0: I, th- I think you probably can. Yeah. Ambassador, we should wrap up, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And it's been, it's been really good getting an opportunity to chat and to meet you. I hope we can get around to doing it physically at some stage in the not-too-distant future.
1: That'll be great, Austin. real pleasure talking to you, and I just want to say hello to all your listeners. And, um, yeah, great great to be here, great to chat, and look to do it again. Yeah, and as I said, we will keep in touch. And as I said, thank you very much indeed.